Jordan. A week ago when we were uh, in Canada with the, the mission effort there, I was really amazed to see the spirit of servanthood and uh, giving, self-sacrifice among, among all of the people there, but especially the, the teenagers. It was, uh, it was a blessing to see. Uh, and they represented the kingdom of God and particularly Greenville Oaks very, very well. I was reminded, though, as I was watching that, uh, something that Lynn Anderson related a few years ago. Uh, he said that he, was, uh, he grew up in Canada. He was a teenager when there was a group that came up from the States in an effort much like the one that we just wrapped up. And he said they were there and they were doing all the things that were designed to be done. And the last day was allocated for a day of R&R where they could just kind of relax and enjoy things and be together. Said that one of the things they did is they all piled in bands and went out to the, the lake. It was a hot day, hot summer day, and they were going to go swimming. And uh, the teens from Canada all jumped in the water. The teens from the States sat on the beach and just watched. Because you see, at their church, mixed swimming was not something you could do. A little later on in the day, after they had finished that, they decided, well, here's what we can do. We can, we can go to the movies. So they all piled in the vans and went to the movies, and the teens from the States went in and enjoyed the movie, and the teens from Canada sat out because going to the movies is something you didn't do if you were serious about being a Christian. And so that, that time that was designed to have a fellowship time where people could be together and enjoy that didn't exactly work out that way. I suspect that's not the last time that there were some Christians that looked at things different ways and that those differences made it difficult to, to join together in something. There are all kinds of places, people, times where those individuals who sincerely love God and are devoted to being his people decide that there are certain rules that you have to follow, certain things that you can do or that you can't do. And that's just paramount because after all, if you, if you don't follow the rules, your relationship with God is in jeopardy. That's not really anything new. That's been with us since the very earliest days of Christianity. We're resuming our series of lessons today that we've entitled Pictures of Grace. And this morning, we want to look at a picture of grace that's a little bit different from the ones we've typically been looking at. We want to look at what God does when someone threatens the grace that we find in Christ Jesus and the freedom that we get because of that grace. You see, the Apostle Paul had gone to various cities all around the Mediterranean Sea telling people about Jesus, telling people about the incredible, glorious salvation that we can find as followers of Jesus Christ because of what he did for us at the cross. And he would spend some time in one place and then he would move on to another place and 
Sometimes when he would move on, some other people, other followers of Jesus would come in, as they did in Galatians. We're looking, we're going to look at Galatians, especially Galatians chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. But there were some people that came into those churches in the region they called Galatia. And they said, you know, what Paul said was right. We, we really are saved by grace through our faith, trusting in what Jesus did at the cross. But, but Paul didn't quite finish that that he needed to tell you. He, he didn't quite cover it all. So what we want you to, to know, what we want you to learn, we're going to teach you that there are some rules. There are a few laws that you're going to have to, to take and, and follow. And if you'll follow these laws, if you'll keep these rules along with trusting in what Jesus did at the cross, then you can be saved. Then you can have that relationship with God that Paul was talking about. And the, and the people there, these new Christians, they, they thought, well, that sounds reasonable. They believed that, and they, they started going along with that. And Paul hears about it, and it makes him angry. I mean, you, you only have to read careful, too carefully in Galatians to realize he's not real happy when he's writing this because he realizes that this is the work of the deceiver trying to rob followers of Jesus from the freedom that he purchased with his death on the cross and, and, and trying to move them back into sort of a form of, of slavery. So he writes this letter to these new Christians imploring them to reject this false gospel that people are trying to put on them and refuse to be enslaved again. Look at Galatians chapter 5, where first one, we read a, a series of, of passages from the entire book of Galatians just a minute ago. Look, let's concentrate on chapter 5 right now. Paul says, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. I remember when I was nine years old seeing on television a speech that was being given on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It was August of 1963, and the person speaking was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Listen to this very short clip of a part of that speech. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh shall see it together. 
This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrims cry. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech is certainly one of the most significant and important speeches in the history of our nation. As he called people, all people, all of us, to join together to make this place, this nation, a place where everyone could experience the kind of freedom and equality that God created us to have. And we thank God for the, the courage and the efforts of him and so many others during those turbulent times and those who came before and after to help make that a reality. Now, the irony of that speech that was given in 1963 is that the freedoms that King was advocating had already been accomplished legally a hundred years earlier. The law said every single person in this nation was free and had equal rights, equal protection under the law. That, that freedom had been purchased at a cost of great human life and human sacrifice. The problem is there were some people that were threatened by that idea. And they didn't want everyone to be free. And so they acted, they, they lived in such a way to keep people from experiencing the freedom that was rightfully theirs, that had already been purchased. And the call was to rise up and prevent that to stop that from happening, to ensure that everyone experienced the freedom that was so precious. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Galatians here, is imploring the Christians in Galatia to take a stand for freedom spiritually, to not let others who are threatened by their freedom in Christ steal that freedom away and so keep them in a, in a form of slavery. You might call Paul the abolitionist apostle. 
He understood very clearly Jesus didn't set us free from slavery to law just so that we could be put into another prison called religious legalism. But there were some people in Galatia who were telling believers, well, that's, that, that, that grace stuff, that's, that's right, that's good to a point, but you have to have some law-keeping in there too. They wanted to put that yoke right back on them. Now, you may not be familiar with that term yoke. It's not, we're not talking about the yellow of an egg here, okay? When Paul says putting a yoke on someone, he's talking about that, that apparatus that you place on the back of a, of a beast of burden, a horse or, a, or a, an ox or a donkey, that you want to carry a load. But you know, without that constraint, they would never do it willingly. Never do it on their own. So you, you put that constraint on them so they will do what it is you want them to do. Now, why would people, why would Paul use that word picture? Because that's exactly what some people were wanting to do to these new believers. They wanted to put this, this yoke, they wanted to put this constraint on them to get them to do certain things. Why? because they didn't believe that new believers would ever do those things voluntarily, would ever do it on their own if they were given the freedom to choose. Now, you got to admit, putting a yoke on somebody is a pretty effective way of accomplishing rather significant behavioral change in a relatively short period of time. All you have to do, if, you, if you're not sure about that, is go look at some of the very rigid legalistic groups around or some of the cults, and you can see that, that it's, it's pretty effective at changing behavior to tell everybody exactly what they can and cannot do. If you have all this list of rules here about what you can do and what you can't do, you can control people's behavior for a time problem is it doesn't really last because you cannot change the inside by addressing the outside. It doesn't work. Jesus told us that all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount. And Paul is saying, if you keep trying to coerce people and, and force people to toe the line and to do certain things and to not do certain things, well, eventually what that's going to do is lead to rebellion because the heart is unchanged. And it's got to be about the heart. And that's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 8 when he says in verse 3, the law always ended up being used as a Band-Aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, we simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Folks, Paul knew you're never going to get real, genuine transformation by dealing with the outside. And eventually, you're going to get that rebellion. That became very clear to me when I was a youth minister a long time ago. I was see teens in the youth group, the ones that came from the most rigid homes where there was the greatest constraints when they 
would graduate and go off to college or when they got out on their own. Inevitably, those were the kids that would just go wild. I mean, just go bonkers. They did a great job of of following the rules when they were at home, of towing the line, because they were forced to do that. But the heart had never been changed. Paul says one reason you don't want to try to deal with externals is because it doesn't work. And you wind up returning to slavery of law-keeping instead of understanding that law-keeping doesn't really save anyone. You know, following what God says is not a bad thing. Don't hear Paul saying, we just need to blow off the rules. You know, we're we're all saved by grace, so what does it matter how we live? God's grace and forgiveness is good enough. He deals with that in Romans chapter 6. Go read that this afternoon. It's not about blowing off the law. Legalism is not about not keeping God's commands. Legalism is about trusting in my law keeping for my relationship with God. And Paul's very clear. That's not what it's about. You know, some things are just an either-or proposition. You're either married or you're not. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either alive or you're not. You can't have it both ways. It's a one or the other deal. And Paul says that's what salvation is. You're either saved by grace or we're saved by keeping God's laws. Now, some people think, well, yeah, I like this idea of being saved by grace, but, you know, we just have to add just a few laws to that. That's exactly what they were doing here in Galatia. We just just want you to do a few really important things. Listen to what Paul says about that. Verse 2, Galatians 5. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law, that's it, justified, that's our relationship with God. You're trying to be justified by law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Some of us old heads in the church remember a time when the only thing we ever heard about grace in the church was you could fall from it. Wasn't sure about that grace business, you know. It sounded risky, sounded dangerous to me. And I used to believe that the way you fell from grace is not keep enough of God's laws or at least not keep the most important ones. And we had our own list of what was really important that you had to do. You had to believe. You had to do it this way. You had to... I believe that because that's what I've been taught. You know what Paul is teaching here? It's virtually the opposite of that. Paul says, we fall from God's grace when we take it and try to add our own law keeping to his grace. You're saved by grace as long as you do some other things too. Paul said, if you do that, you're losing grace. Because you see, the truth is, if you're going to try to be saved by keeping the laws, you can't just add a few really important ones, the ones you really like. You have to take them all. 
That's the way law-keeping works, and we get that. Say you're driving down the, the road at night, and you see these flashing blue and red lights behind you, and you pull over, and the officer pulls over, and he comes up to your window, and he says, I need to see your driver's license and proof of insurance, please, and you hand them to him. He says, look, you are going way over the speed limit back there. You don't, if you're smart, you don't say, yeah, but I stopped at that red light. So let's just call it even, okay? I mean, I kept one law. And besides, look, I'm wearing my seatbelt, two to one. Let's just forget the speed thing, all right? And you can see I've got my insurance up to date. I've got a driver's license. I've obeyed all those laws. That's not the way law-keeping works. You are not exempt from obeying one law because you have obeyed another one. That's not the way it works, folks. And Paul is saying, you want to try to add law-keeping to God's grace for your relationship with him? Then you've got to handle them all. You can't pick and choose. And none of us get that done. Listen to the way the New Century Version puts verse 2. Listen, I, Paul, tell you that if you go back to the law by being circumcised, that was one of their laws they were suggesting. If you do that, Christ does you no good. Again, I warn every man, if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, you must follow all the law. If you try to be made right with God through the law, your life with Christ is over. You have left God's grace. Brothers and sisters, it, it never was, it never will be what we do that makes us right with God. It's what Christ has done for us at the cross. Paul understood that very clearly. Because if there was ever anybody that really worked hard at trying to be justified by law, trying to have this relationship with God by keeping God's law, it was Paul. Look at what he says in Philippians 3 verse 6. No one could find fault with the way I obeyed the law of Moses. Those things were important to me, but now I think they're worth nothing because of Christ. Not only those things, but I think that all things are worth nothing compared with the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've lost all those things, and now I know they're worthless trash. And this allows me to have Christ and belong to him. Now I am right with God, not because I followed the law, the law but because I believed in Christ. God uses my faith to make me right with him. I don't see how you can get any more clear than what Paul is in Galatians when he calls us to recognize that we cannot rely on law-keeping as a basis for our relationship with God because there is no one who can be saved that way. And he doesn't just want us to understand that. He also, in this book, calls us to resist anyone who teaches a gospel other than the gospel of God's grace. You see, there's a great danger we can encounter in the church from those who want to add law-keeping to the gospel of God's grace. He talks about that in verses 7 and 8 and 9. Verse, verse, verse 7, he says, the people who teach this stuff can keep us from obeying the truth. And verse 8, he says, that, that kind of teaching doesn't come from God. In verse 9, he compares that kind of teaching to yeast that spreads through a whole batch of dough and it just, just flourishes and, and, and contaminates everything. If he were using, that's, that's not a positive illustration, by the way. If he, were using, if he were using something today that we're familiar with to get across the idea, he would probably say it's like 
a malignancy. It's like cancer. It starts off with just a couple of little cells and then it begins to grow and it spreads all through the body and it'll be absolutely lethal. It'll cost you your life. We go to the doctor and, and they do a test and they get it back and, and we go to find out the results and they say, I'm sorry, the test was positive. This is malignant. You're going to do everything you can just as soon as you can to eradicate that cancer from your body because you know if you don't, it's going to spread and it's going to grow and it's going to take over the entire body. It'll bring about the end of your life. In the same way, Paul says, look, guys, you don't let that cancer grow in the body of Christ because it'll spread and it'll grow and it will be lethal to that body. Living Bible puts verse 9 of Galatians 5 this way. It takes only one wrong person among you to infect all the others. We can't let that go. One of, the, one of the great leaders of the freedom movement, the abolitionist movement in the, in the 19th century was a man by the name of Frederick Douglass. Douglass, in his autobiography, uh, writes about a time when he first experienced freedom. He was a 16-year-old young man who had been put into slavery. His owner, his master, sent him to spend a year with a, a man by the name of Edward Covey because Covey's job was to break strong-willed young slaves and get them to accept slavery. He, he would boast, you give me a man, you give me a man for one year and I'll make a slave out of well, Frederick Douglass was working. He had been working under Covey for about six months. And one day it was a blistering hot summer day like we've been having the last week or two. And he was out in a wheat field. And from how he described it, we would probably diagnose it as, as heat stroke or at least heat exhaustion. He just collapsed there in the field, sun baking down. Couldn't move, couldn't speak. He was just there. And Covey came up to him and said, what you doing, boy? And he, he didn't respond because he couldn't. So Covey kicked him in the ribs. He still couldn't respond, so he kicked him again. Then he went and picked up an oak slat and began to beat him with it until he was covered in his own blood. Finally, Covey threw the slat down and walked away, just leaving him there in that sunbaked field. When the sun went down and it cooled off a bit, Frederick Douglass says he revived and he, he picked himself up and he, he straggled to his owner's residence. But his owner just sent him right back to Covey. He said he, he went up into the loft of the barn and Covey left him alone all day Saturday and all day Sunday. Monday morning, Covey came looking for him. And he grabbed him. He wanted to tie him to a post to beat him some more. And Frederick Douglass says something came over him. He was just a 16-year-old kid, but he said, I decided I wasn't going to let anyone beat me ever again. 
And he grabbed Covey by the throat and they began to fight. They rolled all over that hay barn. They fought for two solid hours until finally Edward Covey realized he couldn't whip that boy. But he was too proud to admit it. So he just stomped off. Frederick Douglass says, ever since that day, ever after that, whenever Edward Covey would come up to him and say, you don't want me to get after you, do you, boy? Douglas would think, and you don't want me to get after you either, do you, Mr. Covey? And he said, Edward Covey never laid a hand on him again. Here's what he says in his biography. He says, that was the day I became free. It was not the day I stopped being a slave. It was the day I stood up and said, you're not putting a yoke on me ever again. And that's exactly the attitude we need to have when someone tries to put a yoke of law on us in Christ. When they try to say, this is what you've got to do because if you don't do this, your relationship with God is in jeopardy. May God help us to have the courage to recognize that we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by trusting in what Jesus did at the cross, period. And to have the courage to stand up and resist anyone who says, let's just add a few laws to God's grace. And may we glorify God as we do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so very, very much for courageous men like Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, for so many men and women that through the years have stood for freedom, who have said, you're not going to put that yoke on me. May we honor them. May we be thankful for the legacy they have given us. And may we never sit still for people who would, who would try to psychologically enslave anyone. Oh, Father, thank you for for Paul, who courageously stood in the face of the religious establishment and said, no, it's not about keeping rules. It's about God's grace through our faith in the cross. May we, Father, have the courage to stand up to anyone who would try to rob us of that and boldly proclaim that it's our trust in what Jesus did at the cross and that alone that allows us to be your children. Father, may our lives honor you and reflect the glory that you have shown into them through the saving power of Jesus. For we pray it in his matchless name and amen.